90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good, trucking along, you know, getting ready for GSA, all that fun stuff. More magnetometer problems, but I'm trying not to let it get me down. <laughs> <laughs> As I drink heavily. <laughs> right. Well, you can do that now, so. Yeah, that is that is true. Well, not too heavily, but just heavily enough. <laughs> I still have to feed the baby. <laughs> uh, what's uh, What's been going on in your world? It's certainly pleasant in Oklahoma. I'm assuming you guys had pretty pleasant weather as well. We did. I actually spent last week uh, back where I grew up in Arkansas and drove a U-Haul back, which was a thrilling experience. Oh, always fun. Yep. Uh, so got that done. Luckily, it was relatively cool for us to do our unloading. And so now I've got some more tools here, which is always good. Uh, <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, and, so are uh, you going to buy the house next door so you can just ooze on into that house too with all your stuff? <laughs> yeah, expand that into the uh, the workshop house. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> No, so one of my customers, actually, I'd, I'd sent out a thing saying that you know, I've got some new capability now, and they asked if I'd already built a barn. Um, <laughs> but we're, uh, yep, it's expanding. It's going well. I am actually in a workshop this week on the climate and forecast conventions and getting ready to go teach another Python workshop in the middle of September. So it's busy all around. Yes, yes, it is. I understand that. Excellent. But, you know, we're not the only people that have been busy. The folks at the National Hurricane Center have oh, not caught a break. Not even a little bit. Isn't this unbelievable? I mean, can you remember a couple of years ago where we had like two name storms or something? And I bet everyone wishes for that right now. Yeah. And now we have two storms in a row that are going to be record breakers. Oh, right. Unbelievable. And a third one on the way and another tropical depression that is also in the Gulf at the same time. This is, I don't know if this is unprecedented, but it feels unprecedented. It's true. Well, you remember the year that we had Katrina, it was a relatively active year as well. Yes. Yeah. And we had Rita that came along right after that, but it, at least it was a break, you know, these are lined right up. Um, but I guess that's that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today, right? This is sort of one of those real-time geoscience things that's happening that should probably, you know, get some of our attention, um, even though we've done a couple of hurricane shows before. Right. So back in episode 90 and 91, we talked some about the mechanics of hurricanes, which I want to nerd out on a little bit more. <laughs> yes, but, I figured. <laughs> but I thought that it would be good to just talk about what's happened and some of the incredible observations that have come out of these storms and how we get some of these observations. Right. Um, it, these storms, I mean, Harvey just sat there forever and it seemed like there was a lot of things associated with it that we had a lot of time. I mean, this is not to diminish the awfulness that has happened to people, right? But we had a lot of time scientifically to take a really good look at what was going on, which we don't always get a chance to. Yes, and so Harvey, we'll start there since that's the first of these two storms. Mm -hmm. Harvey, obviously massive devastation on the Texas Gulf Coast, massive rain producer, uh, already estimating over $70 billion oh, in damage. Uh, and it's 
its central pressure got down to 938 hectopascals, which is crazy. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a bomb right there. Yeah, and so it had winds when it came on shore. Uh, the highest winds, anyway, were about 130 miles an hour. So that puts it pretty solidly in Cat 4 territory. Mm-hmm. This thing was a monster. I mean, and it just, the craziest thing about it, I thought, was how it just sat there. I mean, when we talked about previously in our hurricane shows, we said, you know, you need three things, sort of the three main ingredients of building a hurricane is warm sea surface temperatures, uh, a pre-existing disturbance, and then light upper-level winds. And boy, light upper-level winds certainly showed up for Harvey because that's why it just sat there. There was no upper-level steering to say, hey, move away, right? That was unbelievable to watch. It was. And what was really fascinating for me was, you know, now we have GOES-16, formerly GOES-R, the new the new satellite that's up there. The mesoscale sector that provides one kilometer resolution imagery every 30 seconds followed <laughs> Harvey. And that is a lot of data. <laughs> you could watch, you could pick out cloud features in the eye wall and watch them rotate around the eye in 30 second resolution. It was incredible. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So the, the data that we got from it was amazing. Uh, but unfortunately, it also caused a lot of destruction. We're talking about over 40 inches of rain, with the peak accumulation I saw being just a couple tenths under 52 inches yes. in a few-day period. That's unbelievable, because it, it sat there, and then it curled back around on itself and came back and hit everyone again. Um, I was looking at a lot of the sort of an animation of the stream drainage graphs, and it was pretty impressive to just watch it sort of sweep through there, and everything jumped its banks. But I know one of the big questions, too, because we talk about all that rain, which was a big deal, and we usually talk about storm surge being a big problem when we talk about hurricane devastation, right? And I know there's been a lot of talk about both climate change and anthropogenic factors affecting Houston in general that may have made the devastation with Hurricane Harvey worse than it would have been, even though it was a Cat 4 storm to begin with. Yes, and when we get to talking about some of the physics of hurricanes, we've got some interesting numbers that have to do with climate change and sea surface temperatures. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Harvey itself, I we had the track nailed down pretty well, I thought. It varied a little bit along the coast, but we knew it was going to hit pretty close to there. What really amazed us about Harvey was how quickly it intensified. Yes. It went, it went from being a risk that you need to be concerned about to something that required evacuation mm -hmm. in almost overnight, actually. Right, right. It's still not the the fastest developing hurricane, though, right? Does that no, no. That still belongs to that one in Mexico. Yes. Last year. So it is not the fastest, but but it, it was, was yes. very fast. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, and it, uh, yeah, it was an impressive storm. It. I thought it did a really good job of showing how well our predictive power 
was able to do in terms of forecasting where it made landfall and how quickly emergency management could respond. Unfortunately, there were still deaths. I think the last total I saw was around 70. 70, yeah. And the timing was not great because no matter what happened, it made landfall at, I want to say, between 6 and 7 p.m. local time. Mm -hmm. And about 6.30 local time was high tide. Right, yeah. So the the timing with the tide made the storm surge even worse. Mm-hmm. Along with, like we just alluded to, a lot of these anthropogenic factors because storm surge, okay, you've got an increased wall of water coming in, right? It's just all being pushed by the hurricane up onto shore. And then you have high tide. And then you have a lot of subsidence going on in Houston to begin with. And a lot of that has to do with oil and gas extraction as well as anthropogenic factors in terms of not letting um, beaches replenish themselves. You know, man-made replenishment of beaches is not the same thing as what nature does to protect beaches, right? And so there's a lot of um, protection that's lost because of the loss of the sand on those beaches. So that adds to increasing the storm surge because you don't have that protection that would normally be there. Right. You know, one of the most, you mentioned some subsidence. One of the most interesting things I saw out of this was a plot of GPS stations in the Houston area and really along the Texas Gulf Coast. I will link it into the show notes. It was a plot of the change in the vertical position of the GPS stations before and after the rainfall. And what you see is that just from the water loading, the ground went down about two centimeters. That stat is nigh unbelievable to me. Because, I mean, imagine you've got feet, 10 feet plus of water. Yeah. Over this very large area that's already not necessarily the most geologically stable. Right. Yes, exactly. And that's that's a massive amount of weight. That is. That's unbelievable. I mean, this is where... People talk about how large reservoirs can exert so much pressure and actually cause earthquakes, right? I mean, water's heavy, man. It is. I mean, there's even been observations where you can see very strong pressure drop, uh, like Boeco storms on seismic networks. You can see the ground move because it's like adding a, uh, a 50-pound feed bag on every square meter. Wow. As the storm passes. So... That is just air. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And granted, this is a much coarser way to measure it. And you still do have to have a differential GPS, something that's very high resolution to be able to see a couple centimeters in the vertical. Right. Because that is the most poorly constrained of the three components Mm -hmm. on GPS. But still, centimeters of subsidence from the loading is amazing. That is super amazing. I mean, have we seen that rebound yet? Not yet. Not yet. No kidding. So I'm I'm interested to see what percentage rebound we get. Right. Exactly. Uh, is it going to go back, or is everything just compounding to make that effect sit there for a while? That's unreal. Which, which you wouldn't think you would have to worry about another hurricane coming through or anything like that. But I don't know. This hurricane season's been pretty strange already. It, it has, and so after Harvey did its thing and devastated the area lots of lots of rescue work lots of really great stories coming out of that 
unfortunately, now we're looking down the barrel of another storm. Yes. Um, this Hurricane Irma, it's really big. I mean, it's a Cat 5. It's going to be a Cat 5 for a long time, too. I don't know. That seems... I, I'm not a tropical meteorologist, not even close, right? But this this heat engine is going for a while. It is. And I'm not going to be surprised if this steals some records. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it's... Where is it at right now? Well, right now, as of recording time, right? It's sitting just north of Puerto Rico. And it's still going to be a major hurricane by the time it even gets to the Georgia coast, which is 2 p.m. on Monday. The Hurricane Center still has it classified as a major hurricane, which... That's a lot of heat. I mean, because you have to remember the purpose of hurricanes is to help balance out the heat budget on Earth, right? We're moving all that hot to northerly or extreme southerly latitudes where it's colder. And to think that there's enough extra heat out there that you can sustain, you know, Harvey and Katya, is that what this other one is that's off of the Yucatan right now? It is, yeah. And then Jose behind Irma... Uh, which I think just made hurricane strength, or it's about to make hurricane strength as of recording time on Wednesday. As of recording, Jose is a hurricane. Okay. It's Cat 1, 65 knot sustained winds with a 994 millibar central pressure. Right. Irma, as of recording, is 914 millibars, oh which you regard. Or remember, we were excited about the 938 of Harvey. Right. And this just, this is the thing that when you step back and say there's this much excess heat that you can sustain all three of these storms, you know, within a week of each other, well, four of these storms within a week of each other, that's unbelievable. I mean, Harvey was hitting almost 90 degree Fahrenheit sea surface temperatures. Yes, that's unheard of, right? That's, that's gross hot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's the, almost too hot to take a bath in. Exactly. Like the Gulf is always a little gross, lukewarm, you know, swimming pool pee water hot. But <laughs> <laughs> but 90 degrees, that's that's crazy. And just to me, this is where the whole thought of, yes, we always have hurricanes, how associated with climate change and global warming are the existence of these hurricanes, I think this is where you you get there. You have the potential for these more massive storms that can stay around a lot longer, only with a couple of degrees of, you know, sea surface rise that's been there for a while. And so that heat to run the engine gets cranked up and you can do what we're doing right now. Exactly. And so you've mentioned the word heat engine a couple times. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so I'm going to interject here my nerd out on the Carnot cycle and how these hurricanes actually, so how these hurricanes are moving that heat. So there is then idealized in physics, we talk about the Carnot engine. Right. There's no such thing as the perfect Carnot engine because mm-hmm. uh, it's 100% efficient, right? right? <laughs> and It'd be but, nice. <laughs> Hurricanes are actually one of the closest things to a perfect Carnot engine in existence. I really love the I the elegance to overuse it of the physics of this, you know. This is really cool. So, let's start with our blob of air, our air parcel. Okay. Just above the surface of the ocean, outside the hurricane. 
Okay. The hurricane is a low pressure center, right? Yes. So that air is going to want to come straight in towards the center of that low. Right. Because we're trying to balance everything out. Right. And unfortunately, it's not going to get to go straight to the center because (laughs) the earth is spinning. Oh, dang you, Coriolis effect. (laughs) Right. And so if the earth weren't spinning, hurricanes wouldn't spin either. It would be, you know, kind of a a moot subject. The weather would be much less interesting. Yes, it definitely would be. But anyway, ignoring Coriolis for now, let's just say that this air parcel is headed in towards the center of the hurricane. Well, it's going to areas of lower pressure, so it's going to expand. Mm -hmm. Right. In a normal world, that would be a cooling effect. Lower pressure air parcels expand, they get cooler. Right. In the Carnot engine, the first step is isothermal expansion, meaning the temperature doesn't change. And if you look at a hurricane, there's so much heat being carried up into the storm by evaporating water that that air parcel traveling towards the center of the storm just above the sea surface is about isothermal. 100 billion pounds. That's a lot of heat movement. It is. And I mean, you take a garden variety hurricane the the number that i've heard quoted and i do not have a source for this so that's always dangerous <laughs> but the number that i've heard quoted is that a garden variety hurricane has about of water aloft <laughs> wow um and it's the heat that allows that much water to stay in the air my gosh that's an unreal number um because think about when you use a hair dryer Warm air holds more moisture, and so the warmer you get, the more little water molecules you can stick in there, and then you get four feet of rain. Right. So now your parcel is to, let's say it's to the eye, and it's going to be shooting upwards. Because that's what the air in the eye is doing, is traveling up. Right. The air in the eye is traveling up, mm-hmm. and it's actually there going to start cooling on its way up. Okay. All right. So there's our cooling expansion step in our Carnot cycle. Okay. Then we get to the top of the storm. Now the air is shooting back out towards the the arms of the storm, mm-hmm. going across the top. There, now we're going to higher pressure. We're going away from the center. So normally, compressing, we would get hotter. But <laughs> we're not. We're radiating a lot of that energy off into space. So it's actually isothermal compression. <laughs> and if you look, the top of the hurricane is very hot, surprisingly hot for as mm-hmm. high as it is in the atmosphere. You're talking about 10 miles yeah. above the surface. Mm-hmm. So you've got this surprisingly hot air parcel that's shooting across the top of the hurricane. And then finally, when it gets out to the edge, it begins to subside. And there it goes through the normal adiabatic warming compression. And now you've got a warm parcel way outside the high, or way outside the low, just above the sea surface, and it gets sucked back in and the Carnot cycle runs again. And thus you call a hurricane a heat engine. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's it's taking all of this heat from the ocean, turning it into massive amounts of kinetic energy and transporting it. A ton of kinetic energy that is doing its best to destroy most of the Caribbean right now. It is. In fact, Irma made landfall over several small islands Tuesday night and Wednesday. 
I remember I was in the Turks and the Caicos um, after Ike came through. And that was uh, 2008, I think, is when Ike was around. And I was there in 2010. And the devastation to the coral reefs there was unbelievable. There were just, you know, hundreds of feet, square feet. I don't know if there were any that were as big as, you know, maybe quarter mile long. And they were just dead. And you could start to see life coming back. And that was, like I said, two years previous to when I was there. So I can't imagine what Irma is going to do to the Turks. I mean, they should be there here in the next day. And I just, it's really crazy to think about how bad, badly affected the sea life is going to be in addition to everybody on the islands. Yes. So, I mean, it did hit the island uh, of Barbuda, Mm -hmm. which I don't think anybody really knew. Yeah. Where it was until this. Yes. Uh, and caused massive devastation. Right. I heard like 90% of all the structures are gone on the island. Yes. That's so it, if you think about this in a, I, I think I talked about in our hurricane show, I think I talked about Guabanse, which was the Teano people. So the people of Mayan sort of descent, they're associated with the Mayans. Um, they have a hurricane goddess called Guabonse. And one of the things that these people, the indigenous people of these islands would do is they would have um, rock outlines of where their huts went because they knew once the hurricanes came, their village would be destroyed and they were prepared for that. But so then they could go back and they knew where everything was built and rebuilt right on top of those rock structures. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's just sort of saying, we know this is going to happen. Here's how we're going to prepare for it. Right. And this is, I mean, I remember the Guabonse uh, drawings showed Mm -hmm. the spiraling arms and that was all somewhat figured out long before traditional science figured out. I mean, it was the mid-1800s before we really had an idea what was going on with hurricanes. Right, exactly. And it's, you know, so cool. I show these in class, and I think you're so used to looking at satellite pictures of a hurricane. And, I mean, pictures from the International Space Station coming out from all these storms is unbelievable. Um, We're used to that. But to think that, you know, they didn't know this. They experienced the hurricanes. And that's, you know, how they drew Guabonse. They knew which direction they were. They knew what the eye wall was. In the drawings, it's Guabonse's mouth is sort of the eye of the storm and then her head and then arms spiraling out um, from it. And it's like they knew a lot about the structures of hurricanes just simply from taking observations as they lived through them. Well, yeah, and you think about it. We didn't have radar observations of them until... I don't know, probably the 70s was the first good set. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly no satellite pictures uh, right. <laughs> before yeah, that time. Exactly. Exactly. These International Space Station pictures are just unbelievable. Oh, there was one this morning, uh, a series of pictures of Irma where the sun was rising and you could watch the shadow, uh, the, the shadow line travel down one side of the eye wall. Oh. That was cast by the other side of the eye wall. And it was amazing. It is a very beautiful storm. Mm -hmm. Uh, One that early on, some of the models were maybe steering off out to sea. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Unfortunately, there were some that showed it going to the Texas Gulf Coast, which thankfully isn't happening. 
but there were also some that showed it hitting florida which is what the consensus is now mm-hmm. right and it's kind of pushing a little more easterly than they had it yesterday right because i think they had it sort of going in the southern part of florida and maybe coming up florida's west coast a little bit more and now they have the center i mean these confidence cones that are put out by the national hurricane center obviously this is several days away um but now they have the center skirting the east coast and they still have it as a major hurricane all the way into georgia yes so sunday saturday early morning they'll probably start getting some of the effects but uh sunday afternoon overnight and into monday morning is going to be a not happy time yeah yeah exactly um i want to go back to those three ingredients of the hurricane right and this is where the again to harp on it we just talked about the heat and you know there's disturbances but those upper level winds and there was a story done on public radio which i found extremely informative to the general public that all throughout the midwest the National Weather Service offices, you know, they usually do two soundings a day, right? We've talked about soundings on here before. They send up two weather balloons and get all this data about upper air. And all through the Midwest, they've been doing four soundings a day. And you say, why are you doing soundings, you know, in the Dakotas to help hurricane forecast? Well, it has to do with what's coming, you know, down the pipe in terms of upper level wind systems, right? Because that's what's going to steer this thing. Exactly. And these things have to get assimilated into the numerical model. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, like you said, they've been doing a really good job of this. They have a surprisingly good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Harvey was dead on. And I mean, it sat there for a long time, but I mean, it took a, it turned around on itself, right? And then skedaddled off to the West again. And they had that pinned down fairly early. I was really impressed with this. Yeah, and even with Irma, everybody was hoping that the GFS model was <laughs> out to lunch, yeah. uh, as it sometimes is, mm-hmm. and that it wasn't going to hit Florida. But unfortunately, it looks like it nailed it relatively early. Yeah, yes, it did. And I'm right behind this is Jose, but it looks like Jose will probably go east of everything. But that's probably bad news for Bermuda, I think. Um, We'll see if they get spared by it. But there are some of the, you know, probabilities of tropical storm force wind maps that they have on the Hurricane Center website. And you've got these two purple swaths next to each other because there's two different hurricanes. And then off to the east, you have another swath of green because you've got Katcha off of the eastern coast of Mexico. Mm-hmm. This is unreal. I don't think they've ever had a map that looks like this. This is unbelievable. And so in Irma right now, the latest data as of recording was 185 mile an hour sustained winds gusting <laughs> to 225 miles an hour or 195 knots. That's really strong gusting to 225 i keep reminding that these are the categories are based on sustained winds not maximum wind speed like you would see in a tornado right so that's 185 miles an hour that's constantly happening yes and though one interesting question might be 
well, how do we get those numbers? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and that is where people jump in P-3 Orion aircraft and fly through the eye repeatedly over and over at different altitudes collecting data. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I've talked to some of these hurricane hunters, as I'm sure you have, and they're crazy people. They are. Uh, and interestingly enough, as well, the gust speeds that we're seeing with this storm and we've seen in a couple other storms in the past mm-hmm. are actually over the theoretical max of the Carnot engine. <laughs> so it's and, beyond efficient? Uh, no, it's climate change. There you go. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is the unfortunate truth of that. Uh, but back to the getting the data with the recon flights, there's a book I've suggested before called Storm Chasers, which to me is a misleading title. It is very much so. <laughs> uh, by David Toomey. That's about a flight into, I believe it was Janet, uh, where they actually lost the plane and crew, unfortunately. Oh, my goodness. And it has a history of when we first decided to try to penetrate the eye wall of a hurricane because nobody even knew if the plane would hold together. Is that the uh, only hurricane hunter we've lost? No. Oh, okay. That is not. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't have th- I wouldn't have thought so because this seems, you know, extremely dangerous. Uh looking at the the list of losses, I see uh, six aircraft. Oh my goodness. That were lost. Uh the most recent being 1974. Oh, so quite a long time ago then. Yes, but that was a C130 which is a large Huge. aircraft. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a honker. Yeah. Um, I mean, these P3 Orions are pretty massive too, but... They're four-engine turboprops, but they're pretty compact. They're not nearly the size of a C-130. No, no. And is there anything that flies that is? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so, uh, but seeing some of the videos that have been coming back from these missions is incredible. That's one of the wonderful things about them utilizing social media more this mm-hmm. season mm-hmm. yeah exactly um it, these are i don't think it makes up for the destruction obviously it doesn't make up for the destruction but these really are unprecedented storms and we are gathering lots of data about them which is going to help us understand how climate change is going to affect this because you just can't say Climate change means we're going to get more storms or bigger storms. Well, which is it and why? You know, you can't just make those generalizations. But I think it's fair to say that this heating of the ocean is going to cause some things that we as humans aren't prepared for besides just rising sea levels, right? Exactly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these... These hurricane aircraft, they're not just flying through it for the thrill. They're not flying through it to watch some gauge and see what the, the peak is. They're collecting lots of radar data. They're ejecting drop wind sons, mm-hmm. which are weather balloons that don't have a balloon. They're just a instrument on a parachute that gets dumped out of the bottom of the plane and falls through the storm. Right. And then lands in the ocean. Not sure how long they continue transmitting after they've landed. Yeah. Yeah. But all of this data is accessible. You can go find it, which is very interesting. We've been playing with it some at work, trying to figure out different ways to make it easier for people to look at. Uh, But it's an incredible data set. And not only is the meteorological community looking at their data, 
but so is the seismological community. In fact, this t- just this morning, I spent a while plotting uh, seismic noise amplitudes and being able to watch the noise amplitudes ramp up as Irma's heading towards some of these stations. Wow. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like, what kind of level of noise are we talking about? I mean, would you note if you weren't looking for that signal, would you notice that something had changed? Oh, yeah. I mean, wow. Uh, several hundred times change in terms of integrated power. <laughs> okay. Uh, the station, there was a station that got directly hit overnight. And the last time it reported, it was almost a 700 times increase in the integrated power. Wow. So that's not something you're, you know, just randomly fishing out of the data. That's a signal. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very large. And <laughs> if you did try to back project and find the direction of this uh, from an array, which has been done before, there are some animations out there, you see all the arrows point right towards the storm. Oh, that's unbelievable. I never, I mean, I've never really thought about that with hurricanes. Obviously, we've talked about it with tornadoes before, but that makes, it makes sense. But yeah, this very much, you know, an integration of the Earth system there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. That's unreal. So, I mean, we'll keep an eye on these storms, of course. Uh, if we do have any listeners that are in the affected areas, we're thinking about you. Yes, and absolutely. Do stay safe. Hopefully, Jose, we won't have anything to say about it. Let's hope that stays that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I thought that this was... This was worth spending a show talking about just because how incredible the Atlantic season is right now. Right. And and we just keep, temperature-wise, we just keep breaking records, it seems like. And now we're starting to break, you know, rainfall records. And every successive storm seems to be getting pressure records. And so this is worth, this is worth paying attention to, I think. Exactly. Yeah. But... I think we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> um, right. So let's put that put that down and talk about something else that is also very contentious, just like climate change. And that's how do you duke it out and see who's first author on your scientific papers you're writing with people? <laughs> exactly. And so this was sent in by listener Taryn. It's a blog post by Megan Duffy on the blog Dynamic Ecology. And, of course, we'll link it in. But like you said, determining authorship order is a dance. And different (laughs) fields, in some fields, the last person is the one that got all the funding and is the most senior. In some fields, that person always comes first. Uh, you know, in some fields, the third author is the one that really did all the work and everybody yeah. else just read it. Uh, <laughs> right. That's always the joke that, <laughs> that we use. <laughs> right. The last person's the undergrad that ran all of the data. <laughs> right. And then, you know, the second author is the graduate student that analyzed all the data and the first author is the advisor. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. That's, yeah. What's wrong with that? <laughs> and so this was a whole series of pretty funny ways that people have resolved this issue (laughs) i love this because i i've never run into this you know i've always worked with people that are we're all fairly congenial and we know who did what um but some of these are fantastic and so (laughs) these were a compilation and apparently these went around twitter quite a bit which makes me sad that i wasn't 
you know, very active on Twitter when this happened. Um, the first one is by Nelson Harrison Jr. and Nelson Harrison Sr., right? Right. <laughs> and it's pretty good about how these people... Um, there's a bunch of these Harrison and Harrison papers, um, and it says... In the acknowledgments, the order of authors' names is alphabetical. This article is an outgrowth of some other things that happened. And then they say, you know, it's alphabetical. Well, it took till the 21st letter of their names to break the <laughs> alphabetical tie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, that's so great. <laughs> so that one was pretty good. Uh, not as good as Hassel and May 1974 in the Journal of Animal Ecology, in which there is a footnote. Uh, it says the order of authorship was determined from a 25-game croquet series <laughs> held in the summer of 1973. I love this. Um, my brothers and I used to play croquet. And if you've ever played croquet, it's like hitting the little balls, really hard balls through wickets out on the lawn, right? And you can do all kinds of dastardly things um to win this game and <laughs> i love it that it is questioned whether croquet is an athletic pursuit and i will say i believe it is <laughs> right <laughs> and i can't imagine 25 games that's fantastic um i love it that it was held at imperial college field station right so obviously some scientific work was not getting done so these guys could go out and play croquet <laughs> it was lunch every day for a month <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, there's lots of examples of authorship order determined by coin flip. That one's pretty, almost as well documented as, you know, normal authorship determination, I think. Right. Or somebody that uh, shows the looks like R syntax for generating a random number based <laughs> on that day's date and sampling it and selecting one of the names. So right. somebody tweeted the uh, the syntax for that in case you're looking for it. <laughs> I was going to ask you uh, what syntax that was in. So R. I, it, it, it looks like R to me. Uh, order of authorship determined by one round of Game of Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I love how that's all that it says. It doesn't say, you know, was this like chicken with a knife? Chicken like, how did you do this? This is great. <laughs> and the one yes. that I would definitely use is authorship determined by rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, there's also a 1998 molecular ecology paper. Uh, this is Roderick and Gillespie that says order of authorship was determined by proximity to tenure decisions, <laughs> which is unfortunately reality in some cases. I know. Like I almost didn't even want to laugh at that. But what I did appreciate is that, you know, those are people helping each other out. That's quite nice. It's true. <laughs> that one had a very congenial spirit behind it. I thought it was great. Uh, Though the one that might take the cake literally is <laughs> Young and Young, 1992 Ecology, where authorship order was determined by a brownie bake-off, and that's in the footnotes. <laughs> oh, I love the tweet that responds to this that says, so in the spirit of open science, where are the recipes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I love, I, I can't not mention this one number one because it says stickleback research the now and the next is the title and that's this river fish that's really endangered and is very susceptible to climate change and dams so i love sticklebacks anyway but there's an asterisk by every author's name and the footnote says each author wishes the others had contributed more 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) So in another case, which this was pretty hysterical as well, uh, a couple of folks wrote a textbook and they wanted to do something that was fair and not random. So they decided they would bid. And so they would say, well, if I'm first author, you can have the first $1,000 in royalties, and then we split everything 50-50. The other person would say, well, I'll give you the first 2000 And it turns out that when they got to 3000 one author caved because he wanted to buy a Rosewood banjo that was $3,000. <laughs> I love it. It's <laughs> so good. <laughs> And um, on Twitter, the author responded with a picture of his banjo. <laughs> banjo that resulted from authorship order. And it is a beauty, that's for sure. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's very well loved, you can tell. <laughs> oh, um, th- this is great. Th- there's also not quite the last one in the series here. Uh, Colin McLeod and Colin McLeod. No middle <laughs> initials or anything. And the footnote says, the order of authorship was determined alphabetically. Correspondence may be directed to either Colin McLeod, one of whom, who is now at the Department of Psychology, University of Waterloo, the other of whom is at the Department of Psychology, University of Western Australia. Only we know which is which. (laughs) I love this so much. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Oh, I love it when people can laugh at their science. Um, (laughs) there's obviously a lot of, you know, croquet or athletic stuff. There was a backgammon contest lasting two days, (laughs) right? (laughs) which I think is fantastic. (laughs) Backgammon can be pretty, man, people get worked up about it. I don't know if you've ever played it. Yeah. I haven't in a long time. I couldn't, I couldn't if I just sat down to now. Yeah. I I remember my mom and I taught it to ourselves and then we didn't speak to each other for like a week after it. Oh, this is great. <laughs> so authorship is a tricky thing. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've even dealt with it causing uh, rifts in <laughs> groups of scientists that have worked together. Uh, was that a was that a seismic joke you just slipped in there? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish people would approach it more like these um, examples of papers that Megan has on her blog. <laughs> It's true. So thanks, Taryn, for sending this in. It's not a paper, but a series of papers, all of which qualify for fun paper status based on one thing alone. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) If you have a fun paper that you would like to send us or have your preference for authorship ordering determination, (laughs) you can send it to our podcast, which would be Doolin and Lehman if we go alphabetically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just Lehman if we go in terms of who puts the most effort in. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, we're both available show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter. Together, we are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And you can come over to the swung.rocks don't panic channel chat room in Slack. Um, we've got a lot of posted questions for some upcoming interviews that we have. So if you want to get some feedback in there that'd be great and if you want to ask questions for our future guests that would be even better so uh, write our show for us over there please (laughs) (laughs) and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions 
findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.